In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. O grant that in thy holy word we here may live and die, dear Lord. And when our journey endeth here, receive us into glory there. Amen. And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars. People have always looked for signs in the sun and moon and stars. People are always looking for ways to figure out what's coming. People want to know what dangers lie ahead so that they can prepare and not be caught off guard. People want to know what fortunes lie ahead so they can encourage themselves to keep pressing on until things improve. People have always looked for signs in the material world in order to understand what is otherwise unknowable. The unknown is frightening. People want to be protected from it. Thanks to the great advancements of scientific discovery, there's a lot less unknown than there used to be. We have a lot more reasonable explanations for how the things in God's creation work and how. So it's grown out of fashion to explain natural phenomena as signs from God. It strikes us as more than a bit superstitious to do so. We tend to associate superstition like this with what have been called the Dark Ages. Back when people were ignorant of the things that science later explained, and when they believed in ghosts and goblins and trolls and other silly things. Well, as unfair as such a caricature of medieval Europe may be, I don't intend to dispel that caricature today. There's no denying that people were very superstitious. There's no doubt they still are. The more things change, the more they stay the same. By the end of the 15th century, change was coming. An intellectual revival was well underway that was bringing an end to what we commonly dismiss as the Dark Ages. It is to this lively renaissance of scholarship that we are largely indebted for our modern way of life. Back to the sources was the slogan, ad fontes in Latin. Learned men throughout Europe were returning to the foundation of Western civilization and Christian thought. By renewing the study of ancient languages like Hebrew and Greek, not only were they better able to study the Bible itself, but they were also able to return to many excellent philosophical and scientific writings which had long been ignored by the schools. With this great shift in perspective, all of Christendom was being prepared and primed for the Lutheran Reformation. There is no doubt that God was guiding all these things for the sake of the gospel. He guides everything in heaven and on earth for the sake of the gospel. Our own Dr. Martin Luther himself is a great example of someone who both benefited from and earnestly promoted the renewal of back-to-the-sources classical learning. He is often credited with ushering in the modern era But there's another figure whose name may be less familiar to us. Even before he became Luther's colleague and friend in Wittenberg, he was actually already quite famous for his brilliance. His name was Philip Melanchthon. Something of a wunderkind prodigy, he enrolled at the university at the age of 12 and was a university professor before his 20s. Philip Melanchthon was among the very first supporters of Luther. 
And because of his clear mind and excellent command of language, Luther even asked this young colleague of his to write the very first of our Lutheran confessions. Known as the Augsburg Confession, it was a refreshingly clear articulation of the chief articles of the Christian faith centered around how a sinner is declared righteous before God. What else could unite our hearts that we are justified by God, not by works of merit, but by grace alone through faith when we believe that we have God's favor for Jesus' sake, who by his death made satisfaction for all our sins. The Augsburg Confession rallied all those who were determined to speak truth to the power of Pope and Emperor. And to this day, every faithful Lutheran pastor continues to make this confession his own. And all of you are invited to and encouraged to judge everything your pastor teaches according to it. What exciting times these were. Not only was the shadow of stuffy intellectual tyranny beginning to fade from the schools and give way to the refreshing and invigorating light of honest inquiry and scientific progress, but in the midst of all this, God was causing the saving light of the gospel to shine more clearly and brightly than it had in centuries. Superstition about God's creation and superstition about God's holy word were being squarely challenged, and the future was looking bright. It's interesting and even a little amusing, if not also kind of embarrassing, to learn that this same Melanchthon, smarter than any of us, who was so celebrated for his intellect and understanding in those early days of the modern era, had himself not entirely overcome some measure of superstition. Before his birth, his parents had hired an astrologer to prepare a horoscope for their son. Astrology was still considered a legitimate science. Based on the position of the stars when he was born, the horoscope warned that if young Philip were ever to find himself traveling on the North Sea, he would surely be shipwrecked and drowned. It was because of this that Philip Melanchthon his entire life refused to travel by boat. Before he came to Wittenberg, Melanchthon was even recommended by the world-famous scholar of the day, you might recognize his name, Erasmus of Rotterdam, for a position at the very prestigious University of Oxford in England. The tremendous honor was all but his, and he would have had instant world fame. But because of his own superstition, he declined the opportunity and eventually settled for the backwaters of Saxony instead. Isn't it amazing how God orders things? He can work around, against, and even through the silly superstitions of men. There is no doubt that God guides all things in heaven and earth for the sake of the gospel. But what exactly do we find so silly about this? Would Philip Melanchthon have been shipwrecked had he gone to England? I don't know, maybe. Is it possible that the stars gave genuine signs to warn him? I can't imagine they did. I don't think so. But I suppose I don't know. Smarter people than I have supposed otherwise. 
I think it's silly, but why? Because it's unscientific? Is that why we laugh at it? Is that why we laugh at relics and holy water? Because it's unscientific? Or because it's unbiblical? Because it robs Christ of his glory and Christian consciences of confidence toward God. What does it mean to be superstitious? And why is it bad? Today in the modern world, more people than ever are beginning to flee to all sorts of sorcery and spiritualist religions. And it's not because they don't know science. They very well may and often do. The reason people are turning to dark age type witchcraft is because science has obviously failed to answer the more pressing questions in their lives. Jaded and unsatisfied by cold materialism, many people are recognizing that there is more to reality, more to the meaning and purpose of life than can be scientifically measured. And in order to measure it themselves, they do what God expressly forbids in the second commandment. They take his name in vain, they flee to lies, and they cling to sorcery. There are problems that technology just can't solve. Science can explain what causes cancer and how to prevent it, but it can't explain why God allows it, or how he can make it work out for your good. Science didn't shed as much light as had been hoped. I guess the Dark Ages never really ended. The problem with superstition is not that it's based on ignorance of nature and how God's creation works. The problem with superstition is that it's based on ignorance of, ignorance of God and how he works. The progress that scientific investigation has brought us appears to be a great light, but it has done nothing to enlighten the nations. It hasn't helped anyone trust in God or prepare for the coming of the Son of Man. No matter how much more is known and how much less is unknown, people are still very afraid of what they still do not know. And they want to be protected from it. Only Jesus tells us how. Jesus warns us. He tells us what we need to know. To understand what superstition is, we must ask ourselves why people ever want to know the future. Why they ever want to be prepared for what is coming, whether good or bad. We must ask ourselves why perfectly intelligent people, more brilliant than any our age has produced, like Philip Melanchthon, would without any sense of irony or embarrassment look to the stars to discover some good omen or bad. People are scared. Knowing how creation works doesn't make it much more predictable, and even when it does, it doesn't enable anyone to keep God from doing what he wants. A storm is coming, they say. Well, there's only so much you can do. The quest for more knowledge is a noble quest. This is, after all, our Father's world, and it's ours to explore. It brings great delight to see evidence of God's magnificent genius in the things which he has made and put into motion, and by such knowledge we're able to serve one another better. But as much as God's mind that the study of creation reveals... It cannot reveal God's thoughts toward anyone. It cannot reveal God's heart. And this gets to the heart of superstition. 
It isn't the unknown things in God's creation that people want to be protected from. It's the unknown God who created all things that people want to be protected from. What superstitious people are after is some sort of mediator between themselves and the God whom they do not know or trust. Unlearned people are going to be superstitious about things that we find very ignorant and even comical. Learned people are superstitious about things that we may be so familiar with that we may not find very silly at all. But it is silly. For in both cases, the purpose is the same. If we cannot know for sure why God does and allows what he does and allows, at the very least, we can try to get ahead of things and be warned. We seek to manipulate God's creation, whatever portion of it we can touch, in order to prevent God from doing what we don't want him to do. People want to be warned. They want to have some sort of idea how things are going to unfold. They may look to the stars to find patterns and proofs of this or that, and we laugh. Or they may look to the earth and see the distress of nations. Trust not in princes, they are but mortal. But superstitious fools don't listen. They seek the warning they need in the political plans of men as though they will be safe if only they keep themselves up to date and in the know and complaining about all the right things that they can't control. But it only causes perplexity, Jesus says, anxiety and distress. They are desperate to get one step ahead of God, one step ahead of what God is up to, because they don't trust what God is going to do. And they don't know that God directs everything for the good of those who love him. Because he directs everything in heaven and on earth for the sake of the gospel. So those who do not listen to the gospel seek mediators who will warn them, direct them, and hide them in the day of trouble. They seek power, wealth, and pleasure to protect them from whatever may be coming next from the God they don't trust. It is all superstition. It is no less superstitious than looking to the stars to see what caution might be granted there. And we are no less superstitious when we devote ourselves to the stock market or to our company's bottom line or to our household budget, as though by fixing our minds on these, we will prevent the disaster that God might otherwise send. The unknown is frightening. People want to be protected from it. Jesus promises God's protection. He warns us. But he does more than warn us. He saves us. He comes to be our mediator. He reveals God as our Father who is reconciled to us and at peace with him, with us. The eternal word of God, the almighty Logos, by whom all things were made and by whose direction and power all things continue on in their courses. This beloved Son of God did not submit to the laws of nature in order to come as our Savior. The laws of nature did not foretell his coming. Holy Scripture did. And he submitted to his Father's promise to come. As he long promised in that which was written for our learning, he worked outside of nature's laws to become incarnate of the Virgin Mary. He came to submit to a higher law, 
the law of God that condemned us, he came as our brother in all humility and meekness to take our place under the curse against our sin. He lived a holy life in our place. He redeemed us by his holy blood. He redeemed us by making peace between us and God. He came to win God's favor and goodwill towards sinners. He continues to show it and bestow it. He who is light of light continues to shed light wherever the gospel is preached. He directs us to his promise. He directs us to the saving news of salvation. He ends the dark ages for us and brings us into his light wherein we see light. Jesus doesn't direct us to the signs and the sun and the moon and the stars. He doesn't direct us to signs on earth or the sea. But he tells us that we will certainly see signs in these places. We will see signs in these places because we're looking there. And Jesus knows it. He doesn't direct us to the hearts of men. But he tells us that we will see men's hearts failing and exposed failing them for, from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with great power and glory. Oh, Jesus knows what superstitious mediation we often look for. He knows the weakness of our faith and the foolishness of our hearts seeking signs. He knows and he has compassion. He tells us these signs will all fall apart. He tells us these mediators will all fail. He tells us and directs us away from these things that pass away. He teaches us to listen to the clear promises he has made that will by no means pass away. He says that when all other superstitious sources of warning fail, he will not. See the stars fall from the skies. But look up, he says, lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. The one mediator between you and God draws near, who sits at the Father's right hand and pays attention to all your needs. He draws near. He who came in weakness and humility will come in power and glory. He comes to judge, but we already know his judgment. We have seen his heart where he revealed it by bearing our sins and by joining us to his death and resurrection through baptism that saves us. Jesus may keep us in suspense as to when he arrives, but he does not keep us in suspense as to what he will say when he does. He is saying it already. For judgment he came into the world, he says, that those who do not see may see so that we recognize him when he comes. Most assuredly, I say to you, he says to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life already. This generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. And look at them taking place in the word of forgiveness that you hear. All that will be spoken in the judgment is already spoken right now. Even now, every false mediator, every false excuse, every false defense is shown to be worthless superstition. 
So don't defend yourself. Don't excuse your sin. You need not be told to put away your rabbit's foot or other such silly trinkets. But you must be told to put away other false distractions, carousing, drunkenness, cares of this life. These are false mediators, dear brothers and sisters, by which you distract yourself as though by distracting ourselves from judgment, we might manage to prevent God from judging. But these do not grant us peace. They hurt us. Jesus grants us peace. The one who comes to judge gives peace right now. He warns us. He warns us by telling us to keep his word now and believe it. He tells us to pray always, to do what the second commandment tells us to do. Yes, to shun sorcery, witchcraft, and other deceitful means of guidance and warning. But to pray always. To call upon him in the day of trouble. To place what Jesus has done to reconcile you to your creator God between you and all divine judgment. What superstitions have you entertained? Has God not brought good to you despite your little faith? What has distracted you from hearing God's word? Do you not right now hear him speaking it again? Jesus warns of terror, but he invites you with tenderness. See in all calamity, no less than in all your fortune, God's faithfulness to speak to you what you need to hear. He who insists on our innocence before his Father in heaven, since he bore our sins and rose again, continues to work outside of the laws of his own creation to bring to you the judgment you need to hear and believe. He gives you his very body and blood whereby he has made full satisfaction for all your sins, to convince you of what he insists on in heaven, that you have peace with God for his sake, that you are holy in his sight. You need nothing else to guide you and nothing else to hide you other than the clear promise that he makes. Those who ignore these promises will say on the last days, St. John says in Revelation 6, to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. But we have washed our robes in the blood of the Lamb. We know his mercy. We welcome this day with tremendous joy. We look for nothing else to hide us but the rock of our salvation. For the faith he has given us, God counts for righteousness in his sight. So who can condemn us? God is for us. All things must work for our good. Indeed, they already have. Since I exposed some embarrassing superstition of Philip Melanchthon, I'd like to close with a prayer which he himself wrote, by which he teaches us how we might be saved from our own superstition. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, with us abide, for round us falls the even tide. Nor let thy word, that heavenly light, for us be ever veiled in night. In these last days of sore distress, grant us, dear Lord, true steadfastness, 
that pure we keep till life is spent, thy holy word and sacrament. Amen. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ unto eternal life. Amen.